This is Sean Mitchell. Uh, welcome. We are live at the Fletcher Azul uh, podcast studio in Houston, Texas. This is uh, Daniel Energy Partners in Basin Observation podcast. Uh, I am very, very lucky today to be joined by my partner, Bob Stanton, and we are blessed to have one of our advisory board members at Daniel Energy, Lauren Singletary, has been around the industry a long, long time. And uh, this week, we're really going to, it's part two, essentially. Last week, we, we put out part one of uh, takeaways from our Telluride event uh, in late June. Uh, we had our keynote speaker, Mark Mills. Uh, that was part one. We actually released uh, Mark Mills' presentation, which is actually fascinating. We'll hit a little bit of that as we start. But, uh, you know, the rest today, today will really focus on kind of takeaways in the industry from what we heard in Telluride from about, I don't know, 65 to 75 uh, executives around the industry. Uh, and so with that, why don't we just kind of, Lauren, I'll start with you maybe. Mark Mills, I thought was fascinating. I've never heard anyone talk about energy transition in that particular way. And I thought uh, he made some really good points. Um, I think some people would say it's hard to believe what he's talking about. But maybe just for the audience here, give us a little sense of what you heard from Mark Mills uh, briefly. Sure, Sean. One of the things I thought was very interesting is that the uh, IEA goal for 2050 was to have 25% of our energy uh, come from renewables. And that's an increase from today's current levels of about 14 to 19%. Well, in order to do that, wind and solar need to increase dramatically. Uh, I will just tell you that the, the world is getting bigger and more people, uh, as far as population is concerned, more people. And, uh, you know, it's just not necessarily realistic that you're going to be able to uh, get to those goals. Now, that was, that was Mark Mills' uh, opinion. But I thought one of the things, too, was that he talked about electric vehicles. Uh, 20 years from now, there's, there's the hope that you'll have around 500 a million electric vehicles in the world. And then we've got 10 million today. Well, that really, if you do have that, according to Mr. Mills, you only reduce oil uh, consumption by 20%. So that's 20 million barrels. That's a lot. So, uh, but on, today, on today's and, metrics. And today's, today's world. Metrics, yeah. But with the increased population, the growing uh, demand for uh, energy from uh, Southeast Asia, whether it's India, China, Indonesia, wherever it may be, uh, some of these goals are very, very uh uh, lofty, in my opinion, and and also Mr. Mills' opinion. Yeah, uh, yeah. I thought the uh, comment that Mark made that I thought was really interested would was the amount of materials and minerals um, that all of a sudden we're just going to be digging out of places like China and places that are not really concerned about NIMBY California type concerns. Right. Um, these rare earth metals. Well, and I think it was the it was not just the amount of materials you have to dig up. I think one thing that, that caught my attention, I think, when he was presenting was and and you haven't really no one really thinks about this, but you're basically I think he said you're going from a world where you're supplying energy with uh, liquids and gases to solids. Yeah. Right. That's that's, that's right, what yeah. a transition to battery storage mm -hmm. uh, to solar to wind is and because essentially on the batteries you can't really supply the world with energy. With solar and wind because the the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine so you need the battery storage component right to actually make that work That's and so right. i think that to me when you think about how much earth you have to dig up and you really are kind of going to a solids versus a gas or a liquid state of energy when you're using battery storage to actually 
make solar and wind work. Yep. And so for me, it was really, um, I think, you know, I guess I knew that, but you, when he kind of said it, you kind of went, "Wow, he's right. This is gonna be a this is gonna be a tough road road to hoe." So I think along those lines, one of the things that's, that's really struck me was the fact that some of the uh, minerals and, and products or the, the solid products that you need to have to make these batteries, they're actually on a decline. You're yeah. talking about copper. You're talking about nickel. No, that's right, Lauren. Uh, I think I think that that was one of the other key takeaways. Uh, I think of his presentation is that, you know, when you think about oh, batteries are going to get cheaper over time. Yeah. And, and and what he basically said is I've never seen a commodity with an increase in demand. I think it was three hundred to three thousand percent increase yeah. in demand. Wow, right. memory. And the commodity price goes lower. Goes lower. And yeah, it was so, crazy. And so it was I, scarce I, material. I think when people start thinking about those types of things, you it makes you think, man. And EVs, you said all the IA assumptions are based on price remaining flat. Right. Yeah. And you, you just, Bob, you just mentioned something very important: scarcity. Scarcity. Because when you have a, a product that's getting more scarce, you have to have larger mines to get uh, the same amount of that product out of a, uh, the low-hanging fruit's been had, basically. Yeah. yeah. I think we can just dig up California. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, anyway, well, that's that's kind of a nice recap. And for those, you know, that are listening to this podcast, you can go back to last week's podcast and actually hear all of Mark Mill's presentation. And I think if you go online to the Manhattan Institute, you can actually access his slides as well. He's a fascinating speaker. In fact, I heard, he, he did the keynote speech this week at the Doug. Uh, mm -hmm. that I just got back from in Fort Worth. Yeah. So a lot of people walking around that event were talking about his presentation, and I think it caught some folks by surprise. And uh, if I think I had another uh, board member of, of a company said, we're, have him come, we're having him come in and speak to our board. So yeah. I think he's really a fascinating guy to listen to. Um, you know, is he going to be right? I think even if he's halfway right, it's going to be a challenge. Well, I think so, when you yeah. think about halfway right, it's – you think about what people like Tony Seba and people like that are saying, where they, you know, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, where they're talking about Moore's Law. And I thought he made a great point that Moore's Law is only good for information. And when he was talking about, you know, s decreasing the size of the semiconductor. Right. And how the goal was not necessarily to get smaller, it was to get more efficient. But everybody in the technology business knew it was possible and knew where it was headed. And there weren't very many skeptics. Yeah, no, that's fair. And that's not, he said that those informational, the Moore's Law does not translate to energy. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, let's move on to um, kind of what is going on in the industry. Uh, again, I think having 65 to 75 company CFO, CEO types out in, in Telluride um, across the spectrum of EMP service, kind of the midstream. Um, let's go through through some of these topics because I think access to capital came up a number of times on a number of panels and maybe Bobby will start on over here with you on this on this topic but just I think we all know access to capital is tougher but maybe give us some of the anecdotes from the conference that you thought were interesting in terms of uh, access to capital. Well I think um, you know along those lines specifically I think the private equity panel both of our um, uh, speakers we're both very glad they weren't out raising new private equity funds and that a lot of their traditional LPs are not participating the way they used to. Um, they're not putting money to work in a lot of new management teams. They're currently kind of reinvesting money into their current portfolio. And I think the big thing is that they're having to run companies like companies and not drill up the corners and right. sell them off to the publics. 
like we used to. Um, so now they're having to, you know, run a company for returns, run a company return cash to LPs, um, and it's it's a different world. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. And if you look at the EMPs that are that are in private equity hands, it really uh, the quality of the asset matters. Uh, they're going to have to, uh, as Bob just said, run these these companies like real live oil and gas companies, mm -hmm. exploration companies. And so the quality is going to matter because you're going to have to continue to drill. And we can talk about this subject a little bit later on, but um, I think the private equity companies probably are going to be more inclined to continue to drill and increase drilling activity with today's commodity price more so than the public's. Well, and I think it's not just the public market that has decided to say, hey, we're not going to provide a bunch of capital here. I think it's it's not just the publicly traded companies, it's the private companies. Yep. Um, I think the banks, the commercial banks, I talked to several folks when we were in Telluride, I talked to folks this week again at the Doug. Commercial banks are just not where they used to be. And when you talk about guys getting there, I actually had a meeting uh, with a guy in Oklahoma City um, and he said, you know, the, our bank group has shrunk from 10 banks to five banks and it was kind of hard to get the deal gun, done or just revolving just you know, bank line to get time. done. And yeah. it, because yeah. and he and he thought it was crazy given they were with a private equity sponsor they've been with for 10 years. Yep. So they had a proven track record. And he said, you would you would be surprised how how hard it was to get our, our deal done. And then further asked a guy this week at the Doug about this on the banking side that's a commercial banker and just said you know where are people in terms of price decks like are the price decks going to move higher do you think these guys will get a higher borrowing base because of a higher price deck and he said it's really not about the price deck anymore right. he said it's more about cash flow right. so the banks have changed the metrics as well I think that the entire industry has um, that kind of leads into the next kind of topic here on M&A we've heard a lot about M&A uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the takeaways from the M&A market from Telluride. Uh, well, no, I was just going to say that the M&A market, you know, I think you can divide it into two areas. Number one, the MPs, and then number one, two, the, the oil field service yeah. companies. And it looks to me like, uh, obviously, the, the, oil, the, 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 the MPs are trying very hard to uh, combine where it makes sense, mm -hmm. create synergies, through less uh, back office and administrative areas, uh, but you're not seeing much premium, if any, paid for any of these uh, uh, th these these M and A any of this M and A activity yeah. as it relates to the uh, ENPs. And then if you go to the oil field service side, it's a little bit early in their cycle. Uh, you still got way too much capacity out there, mm -hmm. and uh, how do you value that? Uh, you're not getting really paid for. Uh, your your the quality of your your say tier one type assets. So there's a lot of variables that go into this, and and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it comes out in the in the future. But yeah. there was a lot of this discussion in Telluride, yeah. And I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. I think so. And then and the government, you know, the PPP loans and the the, yep. the the subsidizing of these some of these companies that were not in good financial health to begin with, has extended their lifeline and so it's given them less incentive to do any kind of consolidation in fact i think one of the panelists on the private equity side from the oil field service side of the equation uh had mentioned that she thought some of the the lack of mna we've seen thus far is just for that reason yeah. bobby that's a great point yeah i think um the other thing on the mna front that i 
I thought was interesting is you're starting to see some new entrants in terms of capital, mm -hmm. right. right? I think one of our panelists talked a little bit about folks like uh, VTOL, folks like Elliot stepping yep. in. It's just a different capital stream. And, you know, it's interesting on that front is had had several conversations this week. And um, and I think we heard some of this in Taylor, right? But we had, I had several conversations this week at the Doug with guys about who's providing capital to these folks, especially on the oil field service side. And it's, I think there's several folks that we talked to that actually are getting capital from family offices, family offices right? right? And I think that's one, yeah. amazing. I mean, it's just like that, that wedge of capital that wasn't there or even thinking about this space before now has kind of show is showing up because they see, if you believe there's a cycle in front of us, uh, it's a, it's actually an interesting opportunity. So um, let's talk a little bit about the different, I mean, we talked about M&A a little bit, but uh, I also want to get into kind of the public versus private mm -hmm. discussion, uh, because I think as Lauren, we talked a little bit before the podcast started, you mentioned, hey, the publics are going, you know, the capital discipline route, and the privates are, 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 are really the ones leading the charge. So yeah. maybe talk to us a little about what do we hear in Telluride on that front? Because I think it's a important. benchmark of say $60 a barrel. I think that you're gonna see the, the, the publicly traded companies remain very disciplined, try to con con clean up their balance sheets as much as possible, and then where they can, return cash to shareholders. Yeah. But it's all about the balance sheet, it's all about generating cash. Now, from the private side, $60 a barrel is very enticing. Uh, you know, they, they will, in many cases, increase the number of rigs that they have running because they can, they can uh, generate cash that doesn't have to be, it can go back to the owners. Right. And uh, I think that there's more uh, incentive for, uh, in, in this world, for the privates to increase their levels of activity than it is the public's. Yeah. I, I, I just was going to, uh, as far as the public side, I, you know, we had the, the uh, investor panel um, with, a couple, couple, ugh, with a couple of public equity investors. Uh, and one of them from a big mutual fund. And I was surprised by his comment that portfolio managers were still, they didn't care that it was dirty, dirty energy. Right. Yeah. They, they, they care about performance yep. and they care about stock returns. And if one sector, if energy were to pick up steam the way it has so far this year, they feel like they need to be there. And uh, I think you know those guys get man get man get judged and incentivized based on their returns, and they're going to be there if that's if that's where it, that's where the returns are. Exactly, and I I I've gleaned the same thing from uh, discussions with the investment community that we're in Telluride. Yeah, well, and you know when you think about the public versus private, I'll just add to um, I 100% agree with your comment, Lauren, on their absolutely disciplined focus on returns, returning cash to shareholders. I think when you think about the reinvestment rate right. that these guys That's are talking talk about, about is yeah. kind of 60 to 65% reinvestment rate of cash flow. I think I thought it was interesting earlier this week in the journal, or no, it was late last week, last Friday in the journal, uh, Rick Muncrief from Devon uh -huh. basically said he's going to take his reinvestment ratio from 60 to 45% given the higher how, commodity. Yeah, the higher, higher commodity. That's price. interesting. Yeah. And so that is interesting. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean their budget won't go higher next year. But I do think what these guys, a lot of hedges rolling off. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, these, a lot of these guys, you got to remember, these guys budgeted when crude was forty to forty-five dollars, yeah. right, for twenty-one, and now, you know, crude's at seventy-five dollars, and they're not all going to realize seventy-five dollars. But at the end of the day, let's just call it to your point, sixty or mm -hmm. higher. 
versus a $45 price. But let's just talk about your comment about 45% versus 75% because I know we have talked internally about that commodity price. If you want to keep that reinvestment rate, great. But that's going to lead to more activity because you're going to have more cash. Yeah, so what it really means and what Rick Moncrief is saying, I had five rigs running, let's just use that as an example, yeah. in 2021. Well, I'm going to have five, five rigs, rigs running, running in 22. And that's, that's different. Well, yeah. and that is different. And and on the private side, it is, you know, they are still uh, ramping. I mean, I think the anecdotes that we've picked up, John, uh, myself, Bobby, the team has picked up. We were in Telluride two weeks ago. We were in uh, Midland three weeks ago. We were in uh, – John was in Dallas-Fort Worth last week. I think the – kind of current state of the market the way we see it we would see the rig count going up especially in the permanent another 75 rigs over the next three to four quarters so i think a lot of that is still going to be private guys yep, and a lot yep. of the anecdotes we're picking up on guys going from two to four or four to eight rigs is on the private side but look i mean if you're a private company and you're realizing the 75 dollar crude oil field service costs are at the lowest point you've seen in probably a decade except for uh, it makes a lot of sense um, yeah. to do that so absolutely from that standpoint um, I, I think that makes sense I think to your point Lauren that the private guys are a much bigger piece of the rig count today yeah. than they were uh, a year or two ago right. it used to be about a 40 60 split I think 40 percent uh, private 60 percent public and I think we're getting almost the other way a flip now yeah. yeah I remember when the natural gas bubble in the early 2000s it was privates dominating and then that switched yeah. as the decade progressed yeah. And and I, and I do think Bobby your your point about it <laughs> I laugh because I I sat through a lot of presentations at the Doug and they kept talking about you know dirty energy and energy investors are not going to want to come back to this space and I sat there and thought about the comment we heard and tell you right because I agree with him. I think there's two things you kind of need for an investor to want to come to this space. And number one, you need a commodity cycle. I think we have that. Number two, you need returns. You need returns. And, and, and you have to be profitable. And if and the returns are there, I think it's always the it's the, the guy that's not involved in energy, if he underperforms yeah. his neighbor mm -hmm. because of that, yeah. that will change things. Yeah, That'll yeah. change the, the mentality on investing Well, I in think energy. also the, the, the word is returns. Because yeah. back in the day, it wasn't returns. It was growth. Exactly. Yeah. That's and, right. and every single company got rewarded for growing. Yep. Didn't matter if you were service, didn't matter if you were EMP okay. company. Yep. And that's how they were rewarded. And now that paradigm has shifted. Yep. And sure. as the cash starts coming in and returns start coming in, as Jim Wicklin pointed out, um, you know, it's going to be an appealing space. I mean, there are going to be numbers that you can't ignore. No, that's fair. I mean, the amount of cash that Pioneer was talking about on their conference call was just right. astounding. Well, I don't want to go here, but we're going to go here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got to hit the topic uh, ESG um, how much did we hear about it in Telluride I think it's something that's very important particularly to the um, publicly traded companies uh, ESG has been part of our dialogue for the last uh, five six years and each year it becomes a bigger part of that dialogue mm -hmm. uh, historically you know most of the investment community was uh, really interested in the G piece of ESG Absolutely, yeah. and uh, now uh, then it went to the E piece and now it's the S piece I mean yeah. we're covering all the bases uh, I don't think it's a check the box thing anymore I think it's real 
and I think it's something that uh, you know we we did talk about in almost every single panel that we had at in Telluride, yeah. and there was a lot of I thought very um, good discussions about what companies are thinking about yeah. uh, in in almost every one of those areas. Right, yeah. and I think when you think about ESG, it's it's not only important for you know the environmental side and the social. Look, at the end of the day, I think Wickland may have said this in Telluride, uh, ESG, it's access to capital, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a higher cost of capital if you're not there, right? right? And so right. If, you, if, you, if you're not ESG friendly, the cost of capital goes significantly higher. Exactly. And I thought he made that point well in Telluride, and I think I agree with him. I there think. was another part of that discussion that I thought was kind of interesting in that um, if you are call it ESG compliant and that's something you can hang your hat on as a service company and you get involved with a bidding with other companies for an EMP company to do their work and some of the other ones are not and they're going to have a lower cost are they still going to pick you just because you're ESG compliant and I didn't hear any real concrete answers that's on that. That's a great point because I, I actually heard uh, indirectly that they still were more interested in the cost of the goods and services. I heard that after the panel. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> I, 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 and panel. I think I made the point, and I got shot down, but I think I made the point that who's checking, right? Who's yeah, yeah. Who, who's making sure yeah, that they're yeah. following through? Exactly. It's kind of like the COVID test, right? right. Uh, you, go to get, you go get a COVID test, you got to have it to go to Europe, and when you land in Europe, nobody's checking. Nobody I mean, checks. I just talked to a guy yesterday on my way home. I said, hey, how was your trip to London? He said, well, we're supposed to quarantine for for 10 days and he's like yeah we kind of quarantined but nobody nobody's there at the airport yeah checking you when you land yeah. that number one you have a, a negative test and number two where are you going to stay for 10 days yeah so i don't it's not exactly the same but it makes me think you know this whole esg thing is it's real oh, no and right. i think people need to do there's, it there's but no way it's not I, real, i'm just wondering how it's going to get governed exactly. and, and i think that that was a big point as well especially the first day we talked a lot about metrics and how Nobody really has this. Everyone has different metrics. There's right. nothing standardized. Right. And so some people are focusing on methane emissions. Some people are focusing on, you know, adding infrastructure. And, you know, no, nobody's really got the same playbook. Right. Well, let's move um, to another fun topic here. Let's get out of the ESG discussion because I think, like you said, it's, it's nauseating at times to continue to talk about it. Uh, let's go North American activity and pricing. I mean, where what what were some of the takeaways from the conference that you thought were interesting in terms of where is activity going what is happening to the pricing side let's kind of go through some of that i thought i really thought this was one of the most interesting pieces of the conference in that uh from a service company standpoint uh there's been a lot of new technologies that have been developed over the last uh, five six seven years absolutely and the service companies in many cases really aren't getting rewarded for these new technologies. Uh, the way you're getting rewarded as a service company is that you get the job. And if you don't have these new technologies, then you don't get, you don't the, job. get the job. Yeah. But at some point in time, um, uh, the, the oil field service companies need to be paid for their, their new products, their new developments that have made it possible for the oil companies, the E&P companies, to uh, enhance uh, their, uh, in, increase the speed of drilling, uh, enhance the recovery of uh, hydrocarbons. And so th- that was, I thought, one yeah. of the interesting dynamics. Lower the amount of people about. on a fleet. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, there are lots of, lots of things that, you know, 
lot of these EMP companies talk about how low their break-evens are, and well, why are they so low? Right. Well, and I think that the other thing that I think we heard there it, it, when we were in Telluride, if I remember correctly, you guys might correct me here, but I thought I heard on the land drilling side we were we were starting to see some rates in the two to four thousand dollars a day higher yep. uh, range, which is is great. I think, but the rig activity is up, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this. The rig activity is is really up higher, significantly higher, and those rates are starting to move. But on the on the frac side, we're not necessarily seeing the same type of of rate move or price increase, if you will, uh, on frac. But I think from a, from a drilling standpoint, it sounds like the drilling contractors are starting to see some movement. And Bobby, I think, I don't know if it was you and John, but recently I think we've read on the well service side, guys have started asking for price and yes. starting yep. to get it. So yep. it's not uh, it's not that pricing is not happening, it's just happening slow. Slowly. And to your point, Lauren, I want and you to talk very about low something. Nader. Yeah, for sure. But what I want Lauren to go back to, and he said it earlier uh, before we started the podcast, was guys are not getting paid for the new technology. So let's talk a little bit about that new technology, because I think one of the things you want to talk about here is electric frack. Sure. Let's let's go back just for a second to the rigs. You talked about getting a few thousand dollars a day more, but that is for the very top super high spec rigs. That's right. That's what you're getting there. and of course the increases are kind of ratcheted down the lower spec rig that you have but that's also because you have a very very high utilization rate of the super spec rigs mm-hmm. yeah. so let's 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 keep it in perspective no that's fair and it, back to to the electric frack or to you know high uh, tier 4 frack oh, fleets yeah. that have dual dgb uh, dual yeah, fuel capabilities have the yep. dual capabilities for uh, their energy for their power um, are you really getting paid for that, uh, for that extra cost of those rig fleets, That's uh, those frack fleets? That's really what we need to know. Well, and I, and I think today uh, there's also a big discussion around how does the power, what's the power source, right? right? right. I mean, and we heard, I heard about that at the Doug as well. And I think, I think when you think about some of the guys that were in Telluride, I think both Voltagrid and Lifecycle Power were there. Mm-hmm. And those are the guys that are partnering with Halliburton and next year and those guys right. because I think when you think about overall cost of fleet right so let's just assume let's let's play with the numbers a little bit let's assume a normal frack fleet costs 30 million dollars okay okay let's just use that as, as a starting point and then the power is an additional 20 million dollars right uh, it's a 50 million dollar price tag and it it's very very difficult for a service company to to pay for a $50 million fleet that he's basically getting the same uh, revenue per stage, if you will, that he's getting from a tier four DGB. Right. But what I would say is the industry at large, I think we are believers at Daniel Energy Partners that the industry is going to see a bifurcation in the frack fleet market. You're going to either be running E fleets or tier four DGB, and it's not just going to be the ESG question. Um, I think it's going to be the fuel savings the efficiency, I think it's going to be all the above, but I think that's where we're going to go. We're not there yet. I think we could go there uh, soon enough, and we think that's where the industry's heading. And what we heard, what I heard uh, Tuesday morning at the Doug ConocoPhillips did a presentation, 95% of their f- wells that will be fracked in 2021 will either be dual fuel, dual fuel. or electric, yep. tier 4 
DGB dual fuel or electric. So to me, that's amazing. I mean, that's a pretty good endorsement of what we're saying about where this industry is going. Yeah, it was, um, the economics are really interesting. And, you know, uh, the guys that I talked to about that, um, I think it was the Voltagrid guys, if I'm allowed to say names, were saying that, you know, on their, you know, new EFRACs, that typically the EM, it's hooked up to the grid and the EMP pays for the power. Yep. Um, you know, who knows, you know, how that works. And I guess everybody has something different. Um, but it's, it's, it's not, pressure pumping capacity is definitely bifurcated now, just like the rig market. Yep. And it's not, it's not like it used to be where, you know, you, capacity, it, we have X capacity and, you know, so it's, it's going to have to be more specific. And I think different, different geographies are going to require different type, you know, fuels. I agree with that. And I think in terms of, let's go back to the act, one more kind of anecdote on the activity that we got from Telluride that I thought was interesting. And, and Lauren, you were a part of the Thrive Energy Conference that we yep. did in February at Minute Maid Park. One of the things I did at, at, at Thrive, all of our panelists, I asked the question, I'm setting the bogey at 500 land rigs by the end of this right. year. Every single one of my panelists emphatically chose the under. under. I said over under 500 rigs by the end of this year. They all took the under. Yeah. I did the same thing in Telluride. I probably should have moved the number higher. Because yeah. <laughs> it seems like I got emphatically over. Everybody uh, said, uh, pretty much, said under. Pretty much and, everyone and said, I'll take the over on 500 rigs. So what is in it? Four, four months. Yeah, that, that, four months. That's right. And where does that leave us in terms of where we think the rig count's going? I mean, I think I think if you ask, if you look at our numbers and what our rig count forecast, I think we're at 551 by the f- first quarter of 22. But that's an average, a quarterly average. So the exit rate's probably higher, close to the 600 right. number that John and I and our team like to talk about. Yeah. We think you get to 600 rigs by the middle of 22. I think on the frack count, uh, and by the way, 600 rigs by the middle of 22 is pretty strong. I mean, last yeah. Friday, the Baker Hughes rig count was 461. Right. Yeah. You bottomed the first week of August of 20 at 231. Mm-hmm. You've basically gone up 100%. So yeah. it's pretty impressive what we've seen in terms of the rig count. The frack count, we think you're at kind of 215 active fleets today. That means the working fleet count is probably closer to 200. Uh, we see that getting up another 30 to 40 fleets by the middle of 22. So that's kind of where we see activity. Uh, and there are some folks out there that think we're at kind of 235 or 240 today. We can't get there. And then if you remember uh, several folks listing, if you pay attention to some of the bigger companies, Liberty, at their analyst day, basically said they think you'll be in the mid 250s by the end of the year. And you know we think that is implying 15 to 20 frack fleets out of Canada. So. You know, from a pricing activity and pricing standpoint, uh, we learned some great things in Telluride. Let's move on to an, a, one more topic, really, I want to hit before we close, and that's kind of labor, wages, competition, and poaching uh, within the industry. Let's talk a little bit about some of the takeaways there. Maybe yeah, we'll start it, with you, it's, Lauren. It's just become real obvious uh, throughout the discussions at Telluride. Um, trucks, the truck drivers, uh, whether it's a water truck, a, a frack tank truck whatever it may be uh there's a shortage of drivers yeah. and and uh they're having to the, the companies that have these services are having to pay up uh for that uh to to get uh drivers and they're stealing from other they're poaching as you would say from other companies mm-hmm. um, 
and I'm, I guess my question is, as we just talk about that, is are they able to pass those increased increase costs along to the customer, to, to the their customer, customers? Yeah. Well, I think it's tough, and it's it's you're right. Truck trucking is a huge uh, problem. I, I think we heard it on. I think Chevron said on their call they were losing drivers to UPS and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think competition for people in general is really really high. I, I think every restaurant in Houston has a sign in the window that says hiring mm-hmm. um, and then you know maybe go over to you Bob what I think are, what are still you? giving out checks in California yeah that's true <laughs> I really do I think I, I thought I read that the other day yeah, yeah. no I mean so and then you know some some real live examples that uh, as you know our, our partner John loves to drive around mm-hmm. the country and stop at Bucky's you know he he actually showed us uh, a picture that he took back in April late april uh of this year no of this year this year uh late april this year a cashier this is just one example a cashier at bucky's was being offered 13 to 15 dollars an hour in april late april okay three weeks of vacation 401k and medical benefits okay fast forward to july 8 he stopped there last week uh the same bucky's okay so it's a it's a fair comp uh (laughs) now are offering 15 to 19 dollars an hour three weeks of vacation and what it's a 20 percent increase at the midpoint right. in less than three months and by the way turning wrenches in west texas on a rig in the heat and yeah. the what you would call not so safe environment uh or you can Compared sit behind the counter yeah. at bucky's yeah. and make 22 bucks an hour right. i mean yeah. the other thing i you know an extra two dollars an hour in, in in the most recent posting at bucky's if you'll work the night shift that wasn't on yeah. the one in April. So to me, it's a really, really tough market. Uh, I did hear more at the Doug this week. I talked to lots of folks about labor and labor's an issue. I mean, these, these folks yeah. are faced with some real problems. Yeah. I've talked and to a number of drilling contractors over the last, say, 30 days, and every drilling contractor's had to increase the rates for every hand that they actually have on the rig. Yeah. Well, and, and, and remember, it, it, whether it's Bucky's or working at a restaurant, you know that guy gets to go home to his wife every night, right? Right, and the guy that's turning wrenches in West Texas has to stay in the man camp, or you know he's on two weeks on, two weeks off, whatever. Yeah. So it, it I think, I think that you know what that we think that continues to help you push pricing higher. I thought I mean, it was interesting that um, one of our panelists mentioned that they were competing with a, they were trying to hire people for their oil service company, and they were competing with a car wash who was offering higher wages. Yeah, and. They That's said right. they said that they needed to match. I think they had to beat that what the car wash was offering, and then they had to retroactively go back and give that same raise to all of their employees. So that's staying. Inflation is real. It is real. Well, <laughs> and I think that the tough thing is is the pri- this current service pricing environment is is not conducive to raising wages in the, sur- in the that's the problem you're raising wages you're raising costs but you're not getting you're not getting any pr- just so you can go to work which by you're the not way, getting paid for it. eventually that's why pricing is going to move higher cool it has to it, it has, has to, to. Um, and, and i think that i think the the example that you brought up earlier about well servicing companies actually going to the customer whenever they have an inquiry and saying we're gonna this is the new rate mm-hmm. well the crazy thing was is john said he asked this one guy he said the first guy called in and he said hey we'll we'll go 
will go up 10 bucks and then the next call he went up 20 bucks the next call he went up 30 bucks and he got all three of them right yeah so i mean and that's on an hourly rate i mean it's it is what it is but i, th- I think sometimes just asking and i had that conversation with the contract driller in in oklahoma city three weeks ago he goes i think some of our guys in the industry are just afraid to ask for pricing right. mm-hmm. and i think that that that's important bobby one last thing i think you brought up a great point uh, before the podcast, and I think we ought to hit this. On the international side, we didn't have a ton of international discussions, but I thought the one discussion uh, uh, with one of our private service companies was very interesting, and maybe talk a little bit about that because I th- it caught my attention. Yeah, I don't think you would mind me mentioning his name, but it was Aaron Marquez since he's Fletcher Azul since we're in the studio. Yeah. Um, just talked about international business and that he's a small oil field service provider in Midland. And he preferred to do business internationally because of the long-term contracts that they were given and the source of security that that gave employees and for him to do business over there. Yeah, no, he, w- he was way more, more positive than I would have guessed for way a smaller company than I, thought, yeah. than I would have thought on the international uh, the market. So I thought that was interesting. Well, guys, uh, really appreciate you coming in today. Lauren, it's always a pleasure to have you. We love having you on the advisory board. Bob, you did a great job. Thank you for uh, participating today. And then I uh, want to just talk a little bit about our barbecue yeah. uh, coming up September 30th right. in Midland. I'd be crazy not to talk about it. John would probably fire me if I don't mention it. But there's going to be – we've got 135 companies sponsoring, cooking, or judging in the barbecue already. So it's going to be a great event. And if you're interested in uh, sponsoring or – joining us in Midland September 30th we'd love to have you go on our website and you can find uh, a page for sponsorship opportunities thank you very much thank Thanks you guys for joining See us. Good. good job